Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, global health systems have been challenged like never before. As time and resources were directed towards responding to the virus, it was the dedication of healthcare workers that kept services running. Amongst the uncertainty, our hardworking Queensland clinicians have continued their pursuit of excellence, innovating and adapting the way they work to ensure consumers always receive the best care possible. To them, the pandemic was an opportunity to learn and grow and to ensure healthcare delivery continues to evolve to the ever-changing landscape. Because if we've learned anything from the last two years, it is that things will always change and our clinicians will always rise to the occasion. Beyond the initial stages of the pandemic, one of the biggest stories of 2020 was the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. While it may have appeared that the teams pulled off miracles in a matter of months, the researchers had been working on the science and innovation behind the vaccines for years. The team from the University of Queensland joined us for a fireside chat about their own experience with developing a COVID-19 vaccine. From their disappointment in having to abandon their first version to the feeling of purpose and hope throughout the pandemic, this frank discussion was an incredible insight into vaccine science and the passion that drives them. Thanks for the kind introduction. It's a real pleasure for us to be here. I think you know each of us had a lot of interactions with various parts of Queensland Health last year, and you know we were, we were very thankful for that. So we're looking forward to sharing a little bit about our journey then and, and where we're headed and, and where we're going forward. And also, I think more generally, some thoughts about what we're living through, which is obviously a, a very interesting time. So I'm Professor Trent Munro, so I'm going to help try and stimulate the discussion here. And we're hoping we'll go through for most of the time with a discussion here and then open it up for questions, both for those who want to submit through online and, and for folks here in the room. All right, so I think maybe we'll, we'll kick off with some broader introductions, because I always think it's interesting to understand people's journey to, you know, how did you get to a point where you're at the, in the spotlight making a, a COVID-19 vaccine? So I'll get each of the um, team members here just to introduce themselves. And I might go this way and, and start with, with Paul. So Paul, if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into viruses, virologies and, vac and vaccines. How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you don't get very long. <laughs> okay, very briefly. Started in the 1970s, so a long time. I built my own lab, but, but in London, I went to do my PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, but I was a graduate from here in U UQ, and following that PhD, set up my own lab over there, and that's when my interest in, um, in vaccine approaches to, to viruses uh, began, and I was involved in, um, in the early 80s with a, um, the hepatitis B vaccine, which is quite routinely used now. So ever since then, uh, as part of the ongoing lab activities, vaccines have, uh, have featured various um, groups. My main interest uh, has been for a long time in dengue, but also uh, generic uh, approaches towards uh, vaccination. And uh, that's where these guys came in in terms of uh, uh, um, more lately uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the research group. So I'm currently the head of the School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences. So a lot of admin work as well now. So I might just hand over to the guys to the right of me who've been really carrying most of the uh, the uh, heavy yards over the last uh, year and a half. 
Thanks, Paul. So, yeah, I'm, I'm Dan Modison. I'm a little bit behind the scenes. These guys have led the, uh, the CEPI response and developing the COVID vaccine. Uh, and really, maybe it's probably best to say that both Keith and I came out of Paul's, Paul's lab. We both did our PhD in Paul's group. And so that's probably where we got acquainted with viruses and actually how to develop new technologies against them and how to understand them better. And it's probably better to say that my research now is actually more basic and looking at how viruses work at the mechanism level. So I'm really interested in looking at studying viruses and, and how their structures fold and, and how to use that information to build better vaccines. And so that's where my passion is. Uh, and it's been a long journey. I think Keith and I started in Paul's group way back in 2003. I took a little bit longer than, than Keith. We actually shared a, um, a share house at one point. We won't, we won't be telling any of those stories today. Um, <laughs> And yeah, but from there, you know, obviously we've, we've come a long way and, and we're still uh, a really strong team and it's really been great to be on that journey. So, over to Keith. Okay, um, yeah, I'm Keith Chappell. I guess my journey into science really started in high school. You know, I just really wanted to make a positive impact on the world in some way, do something good. Um, so that led me into science and in science, you know, I heard lectures from all these amazing professors about viruses and their work to try and come up with drugs and cures and vaccines, um, such as Ian Fraser. It was just amazing to have lectures from him. And then actually in 2003, the first SARS outbreak had a, a lecture from John McKenzie, who was working with WHO doing the tracing of the first SARS outbreak. And, you know, from that point, never in a million years did I think I would be here, you know, working on SARS 2, 17 years later. So, yeah, I just followed research the way through, through PhD. I lived in Madrid for three years and did a postdoc. Um, came back to Australia and joined Paul's lab again in 2010 and just have been working on vaccines ever since. Great. Thanks, Keith. Um, so I, I, won't, I won't give any introduction to myself except to say... Uh, just to say that... Uh, I joined the team much later on, so I actually uh, joined the team in, in late 2019. We think of pre-COVID, there was such a time that was pre-COVID, um, and had been working in industry in California for the preceding six years. And it was right at the time where the team was starting to think about how they were going to move their technology into clinical translation. And so at that time, when I came back to work with the team, it was really about taking vaccines, this concept that we're going to talk about today, uh, into the first clinical trials, and the first of those was actually meant to be a vaccine for influenza, and that's what we were gearing up for um, as we went and closed out 2019, and little do we know what was to come. And my expertise is really about bringing programs out of the lab and, and thinking about how we do manufacturing and how we take them into clinical trials. So it was very fortuitous timing all around. All right, so why don't we get into some of the questions. So first question I've got is, is for you, Paul. I think, you know, one of the things that's really interesting both you know, both us as scientists and non-scientists is, you know, why, why wasn't the world prepared for this pandemic? Um, you know, what were the key messages the scientific community had been trying to raise on the topic and why don't you think they resonated? Yeah, I think we needed this pandemic for them to resonate, I guess, is, is a very short answer to that question. Whilst the world wasn't prepared, I mean, one, one obvious reason is this was a new, a new disease and uh, you can't have a vaccine or necessarily have a vaccine or or a drug ready and raring to go for something that uh, emerges out of the animal population, spills over to, into, into humans. So there, there is that necessary lag period for, a, for the community to develop technology and expertise. But I'd, I'd go back and say we were actually better prepared than we could have been. 
the reality is the previous two or three years, the, the world had started to change in the way it was addressing or going to address the next big pandemic because we were all saying it was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. Uh, and the outbreak of Ebola in Africa was really the wake-up call, particularly to the WHO, who were continually getting criticisms for having a reactive response to whenever something happened globally. And they started turning around discussing, well, how can we be better prepared for the, ne for the next outbreak? WHO is not a great funding organisation, but they're a great policy organisation. And uh, to fill that funding gap, a new organisation emerged in 2017 called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Wonderful name. Uh, which we refer to as CEPI, and um, that was the funding arm, and it was supported by Wellcome Trust, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Economic Forum, and a wide range of uh, country supporters, particularly Norway, who have their own future fund based on their North Sea oil, and, uh, and invest heavily in global initiatives, not just local, and not just national. So, um, in 2017, this collection of... Um, of expertise and interests from academics to NGOs to small biotechs to big pharma came together. And that's the first time that's really happened. And they all started talking about, well, what can we do to work better towards this? So we had sort of a two or three year lead in to what happened in 2020. So the world was slightly better prepared. A few, a few programs like ours uh, began to be invested in to build the sort of pipeline of activities that are required to, to build those uh, responses effectively. We hadn't quite had enough time, but now that we've had the experience of this uh, pandemic, uh, you know, it, it's, it's woken the world up. I mean, scientists, I think, were in this, working in this space were, were aware of the challenges ahead. But I think the globe is now aware of those challenges, and what we need now is further investment in, um, in our ability to respond next time this happened, because, again, we can say it will happen again. That's great. So on that, I mean, I think a lot of us, I mean, whenever I started talk in the last year I've been, you know, showing a slide of an Ebola outbreak because I think for many of us, you know, we think of a, you know, a pandemic having, happening somewhere else, you know, it's, it looks sort of far away and there's there's different kind of scene, not not happening, you know, here in, in, in the Western world, so to speak. So that's obviously led to a lot of wild speculation around, well, this couldn't have just been a natural event. It must have been something that, you know, was, was man-made or something that was nefarious. So, so Dan, I'm, the question for you, since you're uh, the one who tracks these things, uh, can you tell us, uh, did SARS-CoV-2 escape from a lab? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I saw this doozy of a question. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, the longer answer is maybe. Um, it's, it's just not possible to say, but we can look at the evidence that's available to us. And this virus, although it's, you know, closely related to other viruses that are being studied in PC4 labs or BSL4 labs around the world, including uh, the Wuhan laboratory, uh, it's actually quite distinct. Its, its genome is up to 3% different to the most closely related virus that we know of, and that's actually around about 30 years of evolution. So, you know, it's, it's a fair way from other viruses that we know of, which means that it's, you know, very unlikely to have been engineered because somebody would have to come in and make individual changes all the way across the genome for what reason we have... You know, um, you know, no idea why, why somebody would do that. If you were going to try to make a bioweapon of some sort, you probably would base it on a known virus. Uh, so we can say from that, it's very unlikely that this is a, a, a man-made virus. It could have potentially been released accidentally from a laboratory around the world with unsafe practices. But that's another reason that we need to be very careful about, you know, policy going forward, keeping transparency and support for these types of lab, labs around the world. They need to be well-funded because we actually need this type of work 
to be able to track these viruses around the world. Um, so that's something we need to keep a close eye on. But ultimately, you know, there, there can be individual incidences where, where viruses are released and there needs to be really safe procedures in place to, to get on top of that. And we need to understand how that exists in each country that has these types of laboratories. Okay. All right, so we're going to now start a little bit talking, you know, how, why are we here talking and, and how did the UQ team really get involved in this? So question for you, Keith, I mean, you know, what was it that, you know, Paul mentioned CEPI before, but what was it that, that led to UQ being in, in the position of trying to create a COVID-19 vaccine? I mean, what was the technology, the fundamental technology that, that let us be in that position? Um, yeah, so there was a lot of work um, going back, stretching back many years. So, you know, people talk about how quickly vaccines were developed. Well, this vaccine wasn't developed in six months. We were working on this vaccine platform for 10 years. So it was a lot of work that Dan and I put in as well as PhD students. Um, we had tested this technology with things like Ebola, influenza, um, and also SARS and MERS coronavirus as well. So we knew that this technology worked across a spectrum of vaccines. Um, and what was important, I guess, is that we were thinking about this topic. We were thinking about what happens if a, there is an emergency. You know, we'd just seen the West African Ebola outbreak that really caught us all by surprise and, you know, was a horrific thing. So that was forefront in our mind for those years and just thinking what what can we do? How can we stop something like this from happening? So it was about putting all the pieces of the puzzle together in our group and all the way through from manufacturing to clinical trials um, and having that ready to go. And I, that's what allowed us to move quickly in those six months um, of the first six months of the pandemic. And what about from the technology perspective? I mean, we, we call this a molecular clamp vaccine, but what, what does that mean? Yep, so to get a little bit technical, so the viral envelope, there's proteins on the surface, the spike protein, we hear a lot about that in the media. It's a trimer, so it has three components. They're all stuck together, and the molecular clamp holds trimers together. So it has three components, and it's highly stable. So we knew that this system could work with any trimeric viral fusion protein. So, so that was the key. We knew that it worked with Ebola, flu, and MERS. So we just plugged it into this new virus. Um, it still took a lot of sort of tweaks and scratching our heads and you know worrying about can we do this quickly enough? Will it work? Will it not work? But yeah, it, we we got a vaccine and and produced it. Okay, thanks. So. Dan, I think one of the things that probably we haven't talked about was really in the initial couple of weeks of, uh, you know, 2020, early January, where I think, you know, you and Keith and Paul and others had, had noticed these reports about what was potentially happening in China. And, you know, you, you guys are really quick on sort of saying, well, maybe this is a good example for the technology um, that you have and started thinking about, you know, well, where's the sequence? You know, when are we going to be able to do something? But... As you think back on that, because that was really, you know, the birth of the vaccine. That's the way I like to think of it. And it was the was a time when I look back what was happening in the lab that was was probably the most stressful of everything. But 
if you think back on 2020, I guess, what, what was the most stressful time for you personally? So one, what was the most stressful? And two, what was the most surprising aspect for the 2020 journey? Okay, great questions. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just leading on from what Keith said and, and what, what you've outlined there, that initial phase was quite stressful, obviously, as everyone will probably understand. I think we probably went in actually quite confident that we could do it pretty well, I'd have to say. Um, Keith and I had already been working on a MERS vaccine using the CLAMP technology um, together with Paul. Uh, and we'd had quite a good candidate there that we actually were using and sending around the world as, as a um, diagnostic reagent um, for many labs developing MERS uh, vaccines. So that's quite similar virus. So we thought, you know, the plug and play nature of the CLAMP, we could easily adapt the technology quickly to this new outbreak. And, you know, we got our hands on the sequence, as you said, I think it was about the 10th or 11th of January, we ordered that online. Um, and, you know, Keith and I thought we would have little spike proteins pumping out of the, the lab within a couple of weeks. Uh, but those first initial experiments didn't go to plan. Um, and we had to go back to the drawing board a little bit and design a whole range of constructs. And that was probably the most stressful time when we didn't know for sure we'd have something to take to the next phase. And of course, Cepi was already backing us at that stage. Uh, but if we were to drop out at that point, uh, I think, you know, the whole thing would have fallen apart. From my perspective, that was the, the real pressure test for us. Um, and thankfully, we got past that. And in terms of, um, I guess, you know, surprise, uh, I guess maybe at the other end of the journey, and that was probably, obviously, we all know the results, and I guess we, we might touch on that a little bit later, but just to see the reaction of the community when we actually did pull out, uh, we were all pretty worried that, you know, we'd let everyone down, uh, and, you know, you know, where would we go from here? And just to see uh, all, your, all of your support and our funders and, and just the community at large, it was really great to see that. And so that was quite surprising from a personal level. Great. So I think one of the surprising things leading on for that was trying to manage uh, information flow into the public domain um, because we all sort of felt a sense of responsibility of trying to update where we were without, you know, trying to oversell what was happening. And that's a very difficult thing to do. So I guess the question for you, Paul, since you're in the spotlight quite a bit, uh, when the UQ program started getting discussed in the public domain and you know, there was news stories and all kinds of things, um, what, what were your initial thoughts and, and, and what was your focus around that time? Do I want to get out of bed? Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a challenging time. Right, can I just quickly follow up too, and, and, and just in terms of the preparation and where we were in beginning at 2020. Uh, we can't, I, I don't think we can undersell 2019 as well. That was the first year of our um, larger funding from, uh, from CEPI to, and the, the title of our project was developing, you know, a, a rapid response pipeline. Um, and we had spent a year developing that and, and developing the partnerships that allowed what happened in 2020 to, hap uh, to happen. So uh, the partnerships with the Australian National University, with CSIRO, with the uh, University of Melbourne, and uh, ultimately our CSL partners. I mean, those, those partnerships were beginning and, and we, we had started to build them in 2019. And with that pipeline of activities, we were able to then kick off. So it wasn't just us, it was all of those, all of those partnerships. So it's so valuable to the, to the capacity of going forward and the speed with which we managed to do it. But I guess in terms of the, the, the media interest, I mean, I think we, we, we all got together, we, we were obviously discussing this in the background, and, and, and I think one of the main issues for us was that we were always going to be open and transparent with what we were doing. We didn't want to be ramming stuff down, there was no spin, it was about this is where we're at. Uh, I mean, in terms of, you know, the, the pathway 
it really was a roller coaster ride. And you know, the, that first dip of no, a poor expression and not really getting the, the spikes pumping out like we thought they would be in the first few weeks, that was one of many low points in that roller coaster ride. But each time, like science, as science is, you work out solutions and you're able to ride back up again. And, and that happened many times during last year. And it was, you know, all credit to, to the team that, that they were able to pull, pull out a, a resolution to to a challenge that we would meet along the way. And all the way along, it was about getting that message across to the community. We were open and transparent, as I said, about what we were trying to achieve. We weren't um, putting unrealistic expectations. I remember one of the first things I said to one of the first news conferences was, this is not a given. Um, you know, we're, we're pushing, we're aiming for an 18-month timeline, but there's no guarantee that this will work. And, and you know, we, we, we kept with that line and, and tried to get out um, the information um, as, as it became available. Yeah, I, th I think what I learned is that uh, whenever you talk to a journalist, they're always looking for the headline, and, and that's a pretty dangerous game. Keith, I think, uh, you know, we all worked so closely last year, and I think probably you took the the brunt of the of the you know lab-based decisions um, in the in the day-to-day -day as things went on. Um, I'm kind of interested in in your sort of pricey of the 2020 journey and and really how you kept your focus uh, on what needed to be done as we were going through milestones and, and getting data. So just just interested if you could share some of some of your thoughts on on what we achieved. Yeah. Um with how, however stressful 2020 was, you know, I overall I felt very fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to do something. You know, at, if you can cast your mind back to the start of 2020, it was absolutely terrifying. You know, we were seeing graves being dug in New York, and you know, people dying in China and Italy, and everyone felt helpless. Everyone, you know, want it's natural as humans to feel like I want to be doing something to help. We couldn't do anything, we were locked down, but our team could go into work and we, could, we felt like we were doing something to help. And I think, you know, that's what motivated me, motivated um, all of our team and all of the scientists around the world. And, you know, I guess that's what really hurts me um, and I take personally when there's sort of anti-vaxxers sentiment because I know that all of the scientists in Pfizer and these big co corporations, you know, they're not a shadowy organisation. They're people that started their careers by the same motivation to do something good for the world and to save lives. And, you know, I think that is incredibly important. I, I think Paul touched on this and, you know, it was remiss of me not to comment on the picture behind us and it's it's just a snapshot um, of the of the UQ team of course there are many many others that that are out there that were integral parts of this uh, project which I'll get the guys to touch on but you know really it was you know that group of people it was a strange time uh, probably like many of the folks who are you know working in in hospitals or um, you know, other essential jobs when we were on the roads and there was no one else around in that, that eerie period in early 2020. But, um, you know, I did want to just call out this group for, for their personal sacrifices and the work they put in um, last year. It was a really um, a pleasure to be part of that. But I wanted to talk a little, touch, uh, expand on that collaboration aspect and I'll let any of you take this. I mean, I, I'm just interested 
on the expansion of that thought of um, any examples where people really went the extra mile to help us um, during 2020 from a, a collaboration point of view and wondered if anyone had any specific examples they wanted to, to call out. Yeah, I guess, I, guess, I mean, there's a r range of examples I, I can think of and, and many of them, them are in the science space and collaboration, but I thought an anecdote that might be worthwhile repeating was the uh, challenge we had in getting the material that we'd just made um, to the only place that uh, we could um, we could collaborate with to do the preclinical animal work, and that was in the Netherlands. And this was uh, in a time of the uh, year when all the most of the uh, flights had been cancelled, so there were very few flights going out. I think um, Keith was on the phone day in day out trying to get uh, get our shipment on a, on the next plane, and never got on to that next plane. And there was this one weekend, this quite surreal weekend where uh, we brought our VC on board who happened to know Alan Joyce and so there was phone calls to Alan Joyce and Alan Joyce knew some knew some people in some uh, uh, Frank companies and uh, they talked to their people <laughs> and managed to get us on a, on a plane. So finally uh, we were able to get our, um, our very precious uh, protein agent uh, over to the Netherlands to be tested in those preclinical studies. So there were lots of little stories like that but the serious collaboration ones are, are about those partnerships we'd started in 2019 and, and, and coming to fruition and everybody pulling out all the stops. I mean, it, it really was, you know, that phrase working 24-7, everyone in our team and, and our associated teams were doing that. It was an extraordinary period. You probably saw us on the news um, speaking, but we're not making the vaccine. There are hundreds of people all behind the scenes, all doing little parts, all doing the science, all doing the work in the laboratory, um, but also the lawyers doing the agreements, the legal agreements, the communications team, you know, fielding all the news and reports, um, the contracts team dealing with all the financial side, money coming in and money coming out and logistics. Um, so. You know, every single person in that whole run, which, you know, probably stretches to 200, 300, 400 people, everyone felt like they were contributing to the effort to make a vaccine and they were all giving that effort um, at UQ, at CSIRO, at University of Melbourne, at ANU, at CSL um, and around the world as well and various partners. So it's just phenomenal effort to see that you know, how quickly human beings can do things when we all have the same goal to, to get a vaccine to save lives. So, um, Paul, quick question for you. I mean, if every, we, we, we talked on a, that the program didn't go forward, but can you tell us a little bit about your view on the data that was generated? Was it, was it good? Was it not good? And, you know, what, what really led to that decision about not going forward? Yeah, that's a long story, and you didn't give me the option of awesome in terms of the data because it was. Um, the obviously we've been monitoring the the vaccinees who volunteered and put their hands up to to take our vaccine last year. We've been monitoring them for the subsequent year, and the uh, the responses were very were very good. They were up with the best of the vaccines that are out there, uh, and very few side effects associated with the uh, with the dosing uh, of the of the vaccine. So, why didn't it go forward? Um, it was a decision made some time ago um, when, when our approach was still a lab-based research project uh, to use two small domains of um, a one, one HIV protein, obviously 
not an infectious agent, not even one whole protein, just two small bits of one protein, designed in a way that they didn't incorporate um, uh, normal human reactive antibody uh, sites, so, so that um, it would remain relatively silent, we thought. Um, so that, you know, when, when, the, um, when the outbreak hit in uh, 2020, that was what was in our toolbox and that's what we went forward with. So we, we were aware that this might be an issue. It was in, it was in the consent form that um, our volunteers signed off on, that there might be a, a side reaction to, to these HIV peptides. And uh, when we then started to analyse the data that started to flow in, we saw that um, with some tests, not all, uh, with some tests, but, you know, the primary test that was being used, for example, here at uh, uh, the Royal Brisbane in the diagnostic section, uh, with some HIV diagnostics, they were picking up uh, a small cross-reactivity, and it, so a positive reactive signal was given. So that's when we started having the conversation with um, with HIV experts and others about, you know, what does this mean for us going forward? Uh, the general consensus was this was a manageable scenario. Um, there were tests that uh, didn't cross-react, so uh, we were taking that forward, but eventually we got to the point where there were sufficient concerns about the diagnostic interference effects of, of you know, national um, HIV screening uh, processes, uh, and also the potential for vaccine hesitancy that just those three little letters HIV is being associated with the vaccine might cause, uh, that got, um, got the government a little bit uh, nervous about um, continuing the investment forward. Remember too where we were in early December when this decision was made. Um, it had, the first real results had just come out from phase three trials of the mRNA vaccines and um, AstraZeneca uh, Chadox vaccine, the adenovirus-delivered vaccine, and they were looking extremely good, you know, 95% uh, efficacy levels. It was looking, looking like we had vaccine alternatives. And so the decision was made, do we go forward as well with another vaccine candidate looking good in early clinical trials, but has maybe these um, uh, questions associated with them? You know, I like to refer to 2020 hindsight now. Um, as, as being relevant looking back on what happened in, in 2020. And, and maybe we would have gone down a, a separate path given what we now know about some of the other vaccines and, uh, and some of the side effects. But uh, that, was where we, that was where we landed in December. I think it was the right decision at that time. Yeah, and just to, I think, you know, crystallise where the team was at, something that we don't often talk about is that that week um, that the decision was made to change course was actually meant to be the week that we were submitting our regulatory dossiers in partnership with CSL secure us into 21, 22 international jurisdictions, 140 plus clinical sites. CSL had just finished manufacturing multiple commercial runs and had stockpiled a lot of vaccine. In fact, had shipped vaccine all around the world ready for those clinical trials. So. It was an interesting week to go from, you know, prepping for announcements about, this, you know, potential start of a phase three program um, to that. But, you know, I think the right decision was made no matter uh, how difficult um, it was. All right. So I know we're running... I really want to reinforce again what Dan said earlier. I mean, just the, the huge surprise. I'm just... I mean, unfortunately, I like to not be transported back to that week too often <laughs> but just remembering that week and the, the 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 no sleep i got the night before we and we had to do the press announcement and and exactly as keith was saying you know and both were saying that, that we that we felt that uh, we'd let the side down basically and um, we weren't sure how the press were going to take it and more importantly to to us how the community was going to take it and the level of support 
was just extraordinary. Not in not just in the context of the media, who've, who've you know supported us well, surprisingly. I don't know why I say surprisingly, but you, you sort of don't always expect uh, uh, positive news. Um, but the community, uh, the, the emails we got, the letters we got um, of support and the ongoing support that we've re received subsequently, which no doubt we'll talk about, um, has allowed us to sort of pick ourselves up and, and progress on. So I just wanted to repeat that. Uh, thank you all. All right, so let's get on to a positive message now. Um, so Keith... Uh, and Dan, question is for both of you. I mean, can you tell us uh, where the team is now um, and where things are headed for the next stage of the project? Will we see a UQ vaccine in our future and are we sticking with the molecular clamp technology? So sort of, sort of a cluster of, of, of where things are at. Um, yeah, so the first thing in science is knowing what is causing the issue. So that was obvious. HIV sequences cause a HIV response. So... Um, you know, we're working on CLAMP2, removing all of those sequences, um, finding a molecule that does the same job uh, without that issue. So we're making some great progress there um, and progressing that with a number of vaccine candidates. I think, unfortunately, for the world, you know, Delta virus has really taken hold and, you know, we're not going to be out of this problem for, um, you know, the, the near future. So... Uh, it looks like vaccines are still going to be needed. The doses for um, for the population um, and getting doses out to the countries that haven't even got their first dose yet. So, you know, if we can be part of that, that'll be fantastic. I think. Anything to add? Yeah, just maybe to add to that. Um, you know, we've been really encouraged by the results we're getting with the with the Clamp Two technology, um, and you know, we can see that. Uh, we're getting uh, a response against these new variants, so that gives us some real confidence going forward. Yeah, and I think you know this. One of the missions of, of our primary funders, CEPI, and I know the team here has been global, global equitable access for vaccines, and we we continue to believe that a, a vaccine based on the technology that's being developed here will be suitable for that type from a transport perspective, from a you know utilization. So you know we're definitely passionately pursuing. All right, so I think. I might wrap up our questions here and open um, to the floor online because I think I'm where we've only got about 15 minutes left and just keen to see if anyone's got uh, uh, questions for the team. I think there's a, a roving mic. You can get your question transported through and I think there's an online portal for submitting questions as well. Uh, we've got one uh, online first from Geraldine who's a clinical nurse at a, a Brisbane Public Hospital. How do you respond to the growing voice that's being given to the anti-vaccine movement? Do you want to take that one, Keith? You're good at that one. Um, yeah, as I said before, you know, I, I find it really insulting to all the people that have worked so hard to produce a vaccine. You know, it is a sign of our time, social media, and that everyone has a voice, which is a great thing in certain aspects, but... Um, unfortunately, when it comes to medical advice, you really need to listen to your ex experts, listen to your GPs, listen to, you know, what's going on. And I think it's absolutely clear to look at the data if you've had a vaccine, any vaccine, whether that's a Russian vaccine, Chinese vaccine coming out of Cuba, you're less likely to die from COVID. And that's the bottom line. I think um, in, in the context of anti-vaxxers, I, I, I mean, I, I there are two communities that... that, that I, I have a passion for in the context of uh, communication, and that's anti-vax and, and vaccine hesitancy. 
and, and the vaccine hesitants um, are just craving for information. So I think it's incumbent on us to provide the right information so people can make valued judgment calls for themselves, you know, and, and in discussion with their health advisors. Um, from the anti-vaxxer perspective, I, I've engaged in that conversation many times and it's very, it's very hard to get, get any foothold with facts. It's a belief system, unfortunately. And, and I, I think a very small section of the population. I think um, the real concern we had leading up to more recent times has been in the, the high level of vaccine hesitancy that's, that's been out there. And with, the, with Delta emerging, particularly in New South Wales and in Victoria, that vaccine hesitancy has dropped dramatically and people are seeing the benefits of, uh, you know, now a lot of data is coming out when you see the relationship between those who are vaccinated, those who are not, those who've had serious infection, those who are not. It's very clearly associated with the unvaccinated group and, and, that, and most in the community are now seeing that. So it's, it's, it's important to make that distinction of vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaxxers and remember that it, it's incumbent on all of us, I guess, as health professionals to, uh, uh, to be able to communicate that, uh, those facts and those stories efficiently. Uh, this is Arjun, who's an ICU doctor in Townsville, and says that given there's a, a billion people in Africa who are unvaccinated, it's a sitting time bomb for the mutations. He understands the politics of it, but where does the science lie? Yeah. So, Dan, do you want to talk, I mean, if you can, and we'll pass it over to others as well, you know, what, what we've learned about what's driving the emergence of, of variants and what that means, you know, to have an unvaccinated versus vaccinated population. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we knew from the beginning, I mean, it's an RNA virus, so it's going to be um, mutating. These mutations come randomly, they're, they're stochastic. They come from the replication process. I mean, one, one interesting aspect of coronaviruses is that they actually have a proofreading polymerase, which is a little bit different from influenza and things like that. So it means they mutate at a slower rate, but even so, because the amount of in infections around the world, we're starting to see these accumulation of mutations and these new strains coming about. And so that's a real worry. And so obviously having a lot of people out there unvaccinated, uh, that's a major issue for um, you know, what's gonna happen for this virus, how it's gonna evolve, and something we need to keep a close eye on. And that's another reason, apart from, you know, it's, you know, should get vaccinated to protect yourself and your family, but it's also you know, to protect the world as well. Uh, so it's something that needs to be communicated, that you're doing something that will actually be able to prevent the virus from actually changing into a form that we'll need to go and make another vaccine for. Yeah, and I think the general mantra is you know, none of us are protected unless all of us are protected. And, you know, I think there's, there is an argument to be made that we haven't done enough from a global supply point of view. Um, you know, even Big Pharma probably hasn't done enough on a collaboration front to really ramp things up. Um, you know, but that's where that's where the really tough economics comes in. It's unacceptable. Yeah, a vaccination rate of just a little over two percent in the developing world is clearly not uh, not appropriate, right? And um, and I mean, it, it's just morally not right uh, from a from a science and viro virology perspective. You're right that that will then uh, be a breeding ground for for further mutations, and and that will come back to us eventually. But from a moral perspective, um, I mean, we we as a globe need to be um, vaccinating and protecting the entire population. That's been the prime objective of CEPI all along, and I know it's been a huge frustration for them that um, that equitable rollout that they were all preaching about early last year has not really been happening. It's not through their lack of want of trying, but uh, it's through national and um, nationalism and, and, and vaccine supply. Uh, Chris 
Chris asks, in terms of innovation, what are you seeing that is innovative in terms of vaccine delivery? What's working, including overcoming vaccine hesitancy? I don't know. That's probably a good one for you, Paul, to talk about uh, um, you know, things on the horizon or emergence of different platforms. Um, I, I don't know if it really ties to... I don't know if it ties to hesitancy unless people are just scared of needles, um, but there's some solutions there too. Did you want to touch on anything? Yeah, I guess it, it is quite surprising. I mean, it was surprising to me just how much uh, of an issue needle phobia is. Um, I, I thought it was a relatively small section of the population, but it's much larger than we, we'd anticipated. Um, I think in an, in an emergency such as this, I think that's enough of an, of an issue for people to get over the, over the line. But I think, generally speaking, there is a significant amount of needle phobia. So uh, approaches, I mean, maybe first thing to mention is, is, is surprising new technologies. I mean, mRNA, right? Um, it's not a new technology that we've been working on. The, the, the community has been working on um, mRNA tech, um, vaccines or RNA-based vaccines for, since the 90s. And as a research tool, we've known very, that, that they've been able to work very effectively. The, the challenge has been in delivery and making them stable, and, and that's probably where most of the recent advances have happened. But it was really only the COVID um, uh, crisis that allowed those working in that space to come forward and really test it. And it's been a huge surprise. So mRNA vaccines will remain a part of our future. Won't be the only part. There seems to be this media coverage that it's now all mRNA vaccines. Well, it's not going to be that. They're, they're not ideal for some. Uh, particular targets, but definitely um, uh, new on the horizon and, and part of our armoury going forward. In terms of the needle phobia, there, uh, there are people working and have been for some time, particularly with uh, influenza being a target, um, looking at um, um, oral or nasal de delivery of vaccines, so you stimulate an immune response at, at the respiratory tract, which is what you're trying to stimulate for a respiratory pathogen. That's been the challenge with many of these vaccines. They're all delivered systemically, so you generate a uh, a strong systemic IgG response that circulates and your protection is mediated by that level of IgG leaking across onto the respiratory tract. It just so happens we've evolved a strategy where the majority of the IgG leakage is in the lower respiratory tract, not so much in the upper respiratory tract. So we get good protection, uh, the LRT, but not, so, not as, uh, as much in the upper respiratory tract. And that's why we're seeing you know, good protection against severe disease, but not necessarily blocking of transmission. So. Um, Developing strategies for delivering vaccines to the respiratory tract is where a lot of people are working. And of course, uh, the University of Queensland had, uh, has developed a, a nano patch delivery. You might have heard of that. Um, a small patch made of um, uh, more than 5,000 uh, micro projections that when delivered to the skin, deliver, deliver vaccine to individual sites that allow local marauding um, antigen presenting cells to take up antigen and present to the immune system and that look that's looking and working extremely well and, and there's 15 years of uh, development work behind this now and, and it's now being applied to COVID and other diseases as well so there are definitely new new strategies on the horizon. Uh, Fung is a doctor at Metro South who asks uh, the inactivated type of vaccine is an existing technology. Why wasn't it considered when we needed a vaccine urgently? I'm, yeah, I mean, do, do you want to take that, Keith? I can take that one. Um, it, it's a very old technology, the inactivated vaccine. It's simple. Take, grow up a lot of the virus, inactivate it with chemicals, and use that as the vaccine to teach your immune system what the virus is. Um, 
there's risks associated with that. It works very well for some viruses. Some viruses, the inactivation process um, destroys the antigens. At the start of this outbreak, we didn't know whether it would work or not. Um, it was an event that were uh, an approach that was used in China. Um, but the other big risk of that is you need the virus and you need to grow it, grow it up in massive quantities. So no one wants a big vat of coronavirus in their factory. So, you know, that's why the majority of the world did not take that approach. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. I mean, the, the point that the, the biotechnology industry specifically evolved to create more defined ways of doing that. And, you know, the way, say, that CSL was manufacturing our vaccine doesn't involve any infectious particles or any risk of infection or any biological harmful, biologically harmful um, material. So, you know, that, that's probably the simplest way. But from a response perspective, you know, you looked in China how quickly they were able to develop that. They were able to do it pretty fast, but they weren't able to do it probably as fast as, say, Moderna or BioNTech, who partnered with, with Pfizer on the mRNA. So these other technologies have now surpassed those. Inactivated vaccines is yes, yes they work, um, and and um, are in our history of vaccines, and we have some very good vaccines that have been based on inactivation, but they are poorly immunogenic usually, uh, and and that has in fact turned out to be the case with this particular one. Um, the um, protective protective efficacies were at the very lower end of the uh, of of the mark when you compared with other vaccine uh, vaccine types. So it's probably not the, the most ideal one to go for for a number of reasons. Um, yeah, there was some concern early on with developing uh, coronavirus vaccines that in animal models for SARS-1 that actually seen increased uh, virulence uh, in inactivated vaccines in hamster and ferret models. So there was a lot of worry in the vaccine community that you know if you make the wrong type of vaccine, you might see actually increased disease in people. Thankfully, that hasn't been the case even with these inactivated vaccines, but that was a concern early on. Uh, it's only a couple of minutes left, so we'll start on a couple of light ones that are, are related. Kelly is a rehab nurse from Metro South and says she's interested in Keith's experience of being a reality TV star. And Michelle uh, from Logan, a nurse at Logan, says, have any of the UQ team been approached for TV series or competitions since you're now minus celebrities? And which show would you go on? It sounds like a planted question, Keith. Um, you know, it... It was a bit of fun, a distraction, but also the reason why I and you know our team put our hands up for that is to be able to communicate science to you know the general public. We we know that there's vaccine hesitant and vaccine deniers out there. We know that there's young people maybe considering science, and you know to reach those communities, I think it was a good thing to do to say you know this is what we're doing. This is what Australian scientists are capable of and that there are real people behind the development of vaccine to you know, hopefully show that we're not a shadowy corporation putting microchips in vaccines to track you or that sort of thing. I was surprised to see, watching one of my favourite shows, um, Have You Been Paying Attention, uh, uh, a clip of one of my presses. <laughs> I can't remember what the joke was around it, but there were several jokes made about it. All right, well, we'll wrap up the questions, but I just want to let you know that a lot of the comments that have come through the app have been really positive, that everyone is uh, proud of you and, and really appreciative of all your hard work. 
As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.